the best intuitions I've had over the years is that God doesn't judge us in the sense of a judge in a wig with a gavel and sentencing us to this punishment and that punishment. There is something that takes place which is kind of a judgment and that is I think that God if you like and again this this is metaphor holds a perfect mirror in front of us and says this is who you are and this is what you've done. I've never judged you, you know, my forgiveness is complete but for you to open to that you have to honestly acknowledge what you are and what you've done and then it just flows. But that's, that's just kind of love trying to get us to see ourselves more fully. It's not judgment in a sense of heaven and hell. Hell for me is the more cut off I am from God, the word I use in my tradition, the more I experience hell. Hello everyone, that was a clip taken from a Conscious TV interview with today's guest, Simon Small. In it, he's presenting what I think is a fairly common view in spiritual circles of the nature of heaven and hell, that they are states of mind or reflect our sense of connection or loss of that connection with God or the source of life. Given that Simon was a priest in the Church of England for nearly 20 years, I really wanted to engage him on a more literal view of hell, that it's a place of fire and damnation that we go to after we die, potentially for an eternity. And the reason I wanted to do this is because I think it's a real curse that hangs over the lives of many people, even being given its own name as a phobia, hadophobia, the fear of Hades, the Greek word for hell. People fear that they might either be going there themselves, or potentially even worse than that, they have a loved one who might have gone there already. Try living of that. I find people in spiritual groups can often be dismissive of these concerns because they don't relate to them themselves. And I thought that Simon, essentially having a foot in both worlds, might be in a good position to address these kind of fears. And that's what we get into today. First off, I wanted to get a sense of how prevalent a problem it is, so I asked Simon how often he encountered it with his various congregations in the church. His answer was quite surprising to me. In the 20 years I was an active priest, I cannot think of one conversation on this topic. Certainly for the, the, the kind of the, the area of the church in which I ministered, this just wasn't a question. Uh, it, I cannot remember a single occasion when it came up. I think when you go into um, what might be called biblical churches of whatever description, um, you can use the term evangelical if you like, although that's a very broad term. Uh, I think it is common to find this very literal understanding about heaven and hell and lots of other theology as well, because I think it tends to come from the understanding that the Bible is the sole source of revelation about God. And so therefore it must be literally true. It's called inerrantism. And so it, the text of the Bible, of all the many, many books and letters that are in there, are poured over endlessly, seeking to extract meaning, seeking to extract an understanding that will support what you want to believe anyway. Uh, and I think it, a lot of it is rooted in that. And I think also what's something that people often forget is that Bible wasn't written in English. 
and Jesus didn't speak English and neither did St. Paul and neither did any of the prophets or Isaiah or whoever you wanted. They didn't speak English. The Bible as we have it is a translation from ancient languages and it's a very difficult translation uh, because they had concepts and experiences for which we don't really have words. Uh, and so we take a word like hell, and we find it in the King James Bible, and we think we know what it means. Actually, it's probably rooted in an ancient Hebrew word that referred to a rubbish tip, uh, not some place with devils with forks and fire poking people who'd been sinners in their life. Uh, and I think as you go back into the original languages, this very uh, hard conception of heaven and hell, which is uh, which people in particular wings of the church are very fond of, begins to fall away because the original languages struggle to support such a view. So we, this view tends to be predominant in a, a churches that are almost solely biblically based. Whereas for say the Church of England, whilst we venerate the Bible, we see that God reveals himself, if you like, in traditional language, in other ways. Uh, and the Bible is just one way, which must, must be seen in that much broader context. Uh, so that's a long answer, but I think it gets to what you're, you were asking for. It makes me want to ask, did you have a sense of how your parishioners were conceiving of hell or the afterlife or these kind of ideas, that it, that it wasn't so much of an issue for them, that they didn't feel... The need for the conversation what was their concept of it or your concept of it in the I, I think generally the parishioners i dealt with in the church of england uh were just confused and that is a very good place to be in religion because religion is dealing with the greatest and the deepest mysteries and i think whenever one encounters certainty in a church or in religion one must be deeply suspicious because we are dealing with something that's, that's so beyond our ability to know. And I would say that most of the traditioners I dealt with had a deep kind of heartfelt sense of, of religion, of God, and for a church of the uh, extraordinary importance of Jesus of Nazareth. But in many ways, that's as far as it went. And when they came to church every Sunday uh, and they worshiped and they sang hymns and they prayed and they received the Eucharist, that fed within them this sense of the presence of the ultimate. And really pretty much that was it for, for most of the people I knew. And then they went back into their daily lives and tried to carry that spirit with them. They didn't have some great theological construct which they carried around in their mind and saw the whole world through. Uh, and for me, that's a very, very healthy place to be. Did you personally engage with images of hell at all as a part of your spiritual journey? Not as part of my spiritual journey, but obviously as part of my training as a priest, I was aware of all this kind of theology and all this kind of understanding. Uh, I was brought up in the Church of England as a child with an understanding of God as an all-loving being an all-loving presence. I don't remember hell being mentioned once. 
and it was just a sense that this extraordinary being loved you and a natural response was to try to to be what that being wanted you to be to respond to that love because when you feel loved you want to please the lover uh, you want to uh, grow into what they would have you be and it was more that kind of sense of god i grew up with and then later on in life as an adult when i went deeply into contemplative spirituality in those moments in prayer and in daily life when i just had a sense i was touching the ultimate even if it was for one second uh, the sense that came with that was one of utter love and acceptance so the concept of a a, a punishing hell if i step out of line in any way has just never been there with me and is completely at odds with my experience in prayer okay the reason I wanted to create this interview was as something that could be of benefit to people who are struggling yes. with that kind of fear, okay? Yeah. And I think there's been a couple of approaches taken to dealing with it. So one would be a swing towards atheism. You get people who leave yeah. the Christian church, maybe they embrace some kind of non-aligned spirituality, or maybe they become atheists and they rationalize their way out of hell, if you like. Yes. Okay, this is clearly, you know, kind of um, fairy tale stuff. It's mythology. It's, it's not real. Um, the other one would be a kind of reevaluation of the Bible and of church history. Okay, yes. so like, and you see people saying, okay, this is like, if you really go into the text, there's not that much there. And as you say, that the word is, is more like a rubbish tip. And these seem to be a lot of pagan ideas that have been imported into Christianity. Or actually in the early church, there are, I think, three different schools of thought on punishment in the afterlife. And this kind of hardline hell view is just one of them. So the early church was broader and we've narrowed that. I thought I'd like to do something a bit different, which draws on your particular approach to spirituality yes. around contemplation. Okay. And being present being yeah. present with and how you might look at I suppose hell in that sense but also maybe it extends to equally conditions in life that could be hellish okay so yes because there's a real parallel there between the, the hellish afterlife or people will often describe their situation as hellish they could describe something that's you know not like an eternal torture chamber as hell it could be described being stuck in a job or a marriage or a situation yeah. like that as hell so how would you engage with that from your particular contemplative kind of perspective if i'm forced to use the concept of hell which is a very powerful word i would say that for me an experience of hell is the absence of god there are times when I think we all have it from time to time, a deep sense of connection with the extraordinary mystery of existence. And it kind of fills us and it's like an energy. And everything in life looks different from that place. Even the bad things, they're still seen in this greater context. But there are also times when I feel completely cut off from that extraordinary presence and life shrinks down 
you know, to the size of a pinhead. And then everything feels hard and difficult. And, and it's very difficult to see any meaning and to try and figure out why I should get out of bed in the morning. And I suppose I would apply the word hell to that. It's the absence of something. It's not something in itself. It's like the absence of this ultimate love and this ultimate presence. Uh, and so I suppose that's how I, I would see that word. Um, and so in a sense that when I'm in that place, the practice as a contemplative, which can be very hard because that place is quite addictive often, is to actually step back in some way and try to reconnect with the mystery of the moment. And then that hell disappears. The moment I'm able to step back and still the mind and just see, literally see the mystery again. And this can be in very mundane things. Um, I worked in an office for a long time and I absolutely hated it. I loathed going in every day and I was resentful and angry and, and didn't want to be there and all the rest of it. But eventually I realized that if I was really serious about the contemplative way, I had to find a way to handle that. And I might do a deep meditation in the morning, go into the office and be even worse than I would have been without the meditation because of the contrast. Mm -hmm. And so I developed a practice in, in the office of pausing between every job, making myself not rush into the next job, and pausing and just maybe staring out of the window for one minute and look at the clouds going by or watch a tree moving in the breeze. Just sense the breath. And I did this during the day between every job. And the office stopped being so hellish because in little ways I was always reconnecting with the ultimate, with that extraordinary presence. Uh, and it's practices like that as a contemplative that I found extraordinarily helpful to keep some sense of the divine mystery. Okay, Simon, I think that's a fantastic answer. On the level of the day-to-day hells yes. encounter, okay. But in preparation for this interview, I was thinking to look up the biblical source about the derivation of words but i thought that that's been done right yes what i thought i'd do is I, I spent some time on youtube um looking at things like near-death experience videos of people who had died and had a very hellish yes. experience now i just yeah. put this into context that i think it's something like 97 percent of near-death experiences are positive would be too um bland a word right people meet yes. in an all-loving light and relatives that have passed on and they don't want to come back and they come back and they're they're not afraid to die anymore okay but there's a, there yes. is a tiny percentage who have a hellish experience yes sometimes it can be very positively transformative for them yes. in life um and they interpret it in different ways they don't always interpret it as you go to hell and that's it forever they interpret it as a maybe interpret it as a continuation of where what went on in this life but some people come back from that and they're then terrified to die yeah a glimpse of that because they think that's what's waiting for them um and i think that yeah the it seems to be maybe it isn't but it seems to be different than disliking an office job 
Okay. Yes. You can imagine there's an end to that, right? You might, when you didn't always carry on being working in no. um, So I tried to get into the, the viewpoint of someone who's either having that experience or someone who's watching it and thinking, oh my God, this is real. This is what, this is what happens, you know, if you don't believe in Jesus or if you don't tick this box or that box when you die. Yeah. If I'm coming to you with that kind of fear of like this really esoteric fear of eternal damnation and the sense of hopelessness and it going on forever, how can this contemplative approach speak to that either in, well, just in how, how I would, come in some way to be okay with that in life either it's a concern yeah. that i'm going to go there or that a loved one might have gone there okay because i think yeah. the mind's tendency is to try and look for a disproof okay if i can disprove it in the bible or if i can um rationalize my out of it in some way and zoom yes. it okay and i'm wondering if this contemplated thing and zooming out and is a different approach what, what do you think about that I think the first thing to emphasize is that those experiences are very much a minority experience, as you've already said. That's my experience as well. I'd also say before I kind of answer the question directly that in my experience, this is a very individual thing and it's quite difficult to give a blanket answer. Uh, and like the members of the Church of England that I've already described, I am confused most of the time anyway. And all I can offer is a view. But when I've encountered people who struggled in some way like you described, what I've often tried to do is to direct them to some experiences in their life which have been extraordinarily positive and fulfilling and which are an illumining. And for some people it might be something they experience out in nature. On a mountain or whatever or or it might be holding their grandchild in their hands and looking in it in their arms and looking in the eyes of their grandchild it may have been a piece of music for all of us have had experiences where it's almost like the everyday world has dropped away it's almost like we've had a taste of heaven and what i've often tried to do is connect people with those experiences they've already had of a heavenly nature which no matter how fleeting they will never forget you never forget an experience like that because it's such a it's beyond anything it's beyond everyday life it's something that just goes straight into you and i try to get them to they'll often say they've never had an experience like that but they always have it's about remembering it and, and being willing to bring it up and then once I can connect them with it, I can then start to talk about heaven and hell, if you like, in that context and say, that's it. That's really what's going on. And that whatever you have experienced uh, in a near-death experience or meditation or whatever it is, it's the absence of that. It's not a thing in itself. And for some reason, you as an individual have been open to a darker side but the lighter side exists and you've tasted it let's start looking at that it's a very broad answer but that's generally what my approach would be in that kind of situation okay thank you simon that's um 
That's great. Is there anything more you'd like to say on the topic? I think that's... Um, I mean, just to say that uh, you may be aware, and perhaps some of your viewers are aware, that uh, a few years ago, a, a very controversial book came out on this topic uh, from within the American evangelical movement, where this is very strong, by a man called Rob Bell. And it's called Love Wins. And if you, if you want to go deeply into this from that perspective of somebody who perhaps uh, has been taught that hell and heaven are very real, then Rob Bell's book is absolutely extraordinary because he came from that place. He was an American pastor who believed strongly in heaven and hell. And but a great turning point for him came where one day in his church, they, on the notice board, as you walked in, they had a picture of Mahatma Gandhi uh, with one of his wonderful sayings. But then somebody had stuck a post-it note underneath saying, uh, reality check, he's in hell. And Rob Bell couldn't process that. And it, it fed in and accelerated the whole process in him, whereby he, he eventually rejected all this theology he'd been brought up with around hell and wrote a book called Love Wins, that actually Christianity is all about love and the desire of God to love us. That's what it's all about. Um, and that if there is anything we want to label hell, it is when we aren't open to that. But we can open at any time. And God will always be trying to open us to that love in this life and after this life, because that's the very nature of what God is. And the great power of Rob Bell's book is that he justifies it from the Bible. Mm. And so for somebody who comes from a biblical background, it's extraordinarily important. And that is a, 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 a really, really powerful book to go into this more deeply. I'd also mention something else. Um, years ago, uh, a Hollywood movie came out uh, starring uh, Robin Williams called What Dreams May Come. Yeah. And in, in uh, the context of a, a kind of a, a wonderful fictional story, it explores these ideas. And what it actually addresses um, is really the nature of reality itself. And in that film, what happens is that uh, if I remember the plot correctly, and I may be getting this wrong, is that a, a man dies and goes to what we might call heaven, but then his wife eventually commits suicide because she can't carry on and goes into a place that you might call hell, but it's a hell of her own, her own making because she's become so wrapped up in her suffering and her depression and her pain that the place she goes to after death is like a prison of her own making, which nobody else can get into. But it's of her own making in her mind. And the story is that Robin Williams, as the hero, goes to try and rescue her from the hell of her own making. But he's told by the angels around him that it's very difficult to break into somebody like this, and you may not be able to. But of course, he's the hero, so he succeeds. And he convinces his wife, it's him, and he's real, and he isn't dead, and they're all heavy, happy ever after. It's a beautiful story. 
but it's actually, I think, got very deep truths in. Because the fundamental nature of reality is the mind. We are all aspects of one extraordinary mind or consciousness. And the mind is completely malleable and plastic, and it can imagine anything and then believe it to be real. And so what that film is based on is the understanding that after we die, the reality we experience reflects the nature of our consciousness. The reality that we experience is now picturing of what we believe. All belief can be temporary. And so even if we kind of experience some hellish realm after death, it can be dissipated by the truth. The truth is that it's something we're making, a reality we're creating. And all of us in our daily lives create a reality we live in, in our minds. And it's based on the understanding that the truth is always waiting there, trying to break in to this false reality we're creating. And it will always try to break in because the truth is what it is, it's immovable. Uh, so that film is extraordinarily powerful and I think points very deeply into what's actually going on. Uh, so that book and that film, for people who want to go into this more deeply, I would, I would very much recommend. Thank you. Yeah, I've read the book and seen the film. Um, I'll just comment on that, actually, and we can perhaps have a bit more conversational yeah. part of this. So I think like Rob Bell's story is almost archetypal for a certain stream of yes. the evangelical movement that people come into it from whatever lives they've been having and yes. they're more in resonance with punishment and hell and damnation say the, the idea of god as a punisher a strict father yes. and through the spiritual process they will then go through they kind of elevate to a point where it's harder to sustain that view of mahatma gandhi being in hell say yes because you've come more into contact with that sense of essence, that transcendent thing. Yes. So I think yes. yeah, Rob Bell wrote about what was going on for, what goes on for a lot of people. Yeah. I think what's important to note, and this is important, is that for many people, it is necessary at a certain stage to have a strong sense of a traditional heaven and hell because in their lives, they need that to become better people. Many years ago in a spiritual group I ran, uh, I had a whole load of drug dealers who used to come. This was in Birmingham in the UK. And they were pretty scary people, uh, but they were trying to be better people. And one night when I started talking about my understanding of heaven and hell, and, it, and and the essence of everything was really a, an opening to love, one of them really couldn't stand it. He said, no, 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 God will punish me if I do wrong, mm. and he'll send me to hell. And I realized that moment he needed to believe yeah. that, that it was the only thing that was going to change him. I met a, somebody, a Salvation Army officer, and had a similar conversation. I may have told this story on your channel before, but I was walking along wearing a dog collar, and this Salvation Army officer came up to me and asked me if I was a Christian, which seemed a bit odd because I was wearing a dog collar. And he then tried to convert me um, by telling me how he'd been a drunkard and abused his wife and he'd been violent, but he'd been saved by Christ. And that if I wasn't saved, I'd go to hell. 
And as he was speak, speaking, I again realized that he needs this because whilst he was being a bit irritating, to put it mildly, without this very strong sense of punishment and judgment, he would be a worse person. Mm. And he needed that at this stage. Yeah. But I also worked with somebody years later who'd gone through all of that. And after 25 or 30 years within that kind of theological construct, realized there was more. And I worked with him for some years as he began to let go of all that, um, let's call it fundamentalist understanding and move to a much broader place of mystery and love. But he had to go through that journey. And I think that's very important to understand. And so I'm generally, I make no effort. If I meet, would it were to encounter people like this now, which is probably unlikely, but if I did, I would make no effort to dissuade them from their views until I really understood what was going on with them. Sure, sure. And I can see this has been debated in the church and probably wider spirituality for thousands of years. If, people will say things like well hell you know, the lakes of fire it's mythical but it's a myth we need okay and then someone else will say oh, that's that's terrible yes. and you can talking about lakes of fire doesn't help anyone but i think there's um even if you look at the people who i was watching the near-death experience videos of last night yes their lives radically transform afterwards because yes. they were gangsters or something like that or heavily involved in drugs um, and the vision of the hell that awaited them was the thing that transformed them. Now, obviously, I can't say what would it have been like for them if they had an all-loving light experience. Would that have had the same effect? Maybe, maybe not. It's clear that, uh, I mean, I, I'm sort of gearing this podcast interview up around how can we get hell away from people who are struggling with it, yes. okay? But we yes. actually invite hell in a lot. It seems to be a necessary point of the psyche, and you know, people who are on the receiving end of some terrible injustice want to think that those persecuting them um, will be, you know, at least getting some kind of reprimand in the afterlife because it wouldn't feel, it wouldn't feel just either way, otherwise. Yes. So um, now whether yeah. we always hold that view or not, we, we want to think that um, there, there is some sanction, you know, so, well, we, I, so we invite hell in. When I used to preach on God as judge, and I used to preach, I preached on the reading, and sometimes it was, all, it was about judgment and punishment. I always used to tell people that my understanding of God is not really as a judge, but as a perfect mirror. The perfect mirror that will always reflect back to you the truth about yourself and what you have done. And sometimes, if you want to use this kind of language, that will be a hellish experience to actually see what you've done. But God as a mirror is God as a pure judge, a pure reflector back of what we really are, but also an invitation to change. Uh, and so if you like, that is the punishment in the afterlife, if you want to use the word punishment, that we have to see the truth about ourselves and what we have done. And that in all, for most of us, that's going to be hard. And for some of us, that's going to be extremely hard. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll go on to that and maybe as a, a final kind of conversational point of the transformative kind of nature of hell. Okay, and there's a, a couple of quotations that come to mind. One is, I've seen this quote attributed to Meister Eckhart on the internet. I don't know if he actually said it, but it comes up, you know, you get those yes. pictures, right? Of, um, 
when it's about purgatory, really, and this medieval Catholic um, yes. saint of sorts, um, in a sort of ambiguous relationship with the church, uh, mystic, say. Um, and he's talking about how people experience demons tearing the flesh of them after they die. Yes. Right? These are actually their angels, and they're just they're helping you get rid of all these earthy parts. You can go to heaven, but because that hurts, yes. you're seeing them as demons. And you find similar sentiment in um, Aldous Huxley's writings when he was taking mescaline, that uh, he was yes. having this beautiful transcendent spiritual experience that suddenly went very dark, and he saw the the God's chair as the throne of final judgment and um, he writes then about this occurring in mystical literature that we, when we encounter that love light in the near-death experience the people that are having hellish experience are seeing the same thing but because they are different to that in their minds yeah it's a burning fire that's burning yes. away everything unlike itself in that yeah um and this relates to i had a couple of like dreams which really shaped my image of like all my, my thoughts, my position on hell. Uh, the first one was a kind of waking dream, which reoccurred yeah. where I would feel myself, I would be semi-awake at about three in the morning and I would have the sense I was dying and going to hell. Right. And this yeah. was scary to say the least. Yeah. Right. Cause it's like forever. And yeah. So it, it, now looking back the image I was seeing, I think my image of hell is somewhat formed by Bugs Bunny cartoons from the 1980s where Yosemite Sam would go down and meet the devil and it's all red. Right, so there's lots of carrots involved as well. No carrots, no. But oh, it wasn't uh, oh, right. the hell it was Yosemite Sam. But anyway. Oh, okay. Right, it, yeah. It's a more scary kind of adult version of that, right? But that, that yeah. I can't ignore the similarities and where this image might have came from. But that's just the dressing for it. And I saw mm. the devil there on his throne and I would keep dropping into this. And I would pull away because it's like very scary. Yes. I try and wake myself up, which is what people do when they have scary nighttime experiences, whether it's an abduction experience or an evil spirit visiting or, or this thing I'm describing. Yes. Going to hell. And um, this kept happening until one night I found the resolve. So I have to like, I have to face this, right? I have yeah. to let go into this or I'm never, it's always going to be some unreconciled part of myself. It's always going to be something that I can't look at. And I, I felt myself surrender over to the experience, almost lie down at the feet of the devil, if you like. Yes. The whole scene changed into this transcendent, non-dual experience of love, where all the yep. fires became love. And it was like, oh, that's what was there all the time. And um, I hear explanations like it's, it's the part of that you're resisting. You know, I, I'm, not, yes. I'm not really sure, but that was my direct um, experience of it. And then the other one was... Um, I was up high somewhere and there's a dream going on and all of a sudden I looked down and I saw this perfect black circle and the edge of it was on fire and I started falling into it and it's a sense yeah. of that's the pit of hell and I'm falling and when I evaluated it when I was awake I looked at what fear was going on inside me at that moment it was the sense of this exists in the distance outside of mind and you fall into it. And falling is something that is completely beyond your control. When you start yes. falling, you can't stop. There's nothing to grab onto. And yeah. I think that the sense of distance was like symbolic of it being outside, outside of consciousness, outside of mind, nothing you can do about it. So the fear in hell for me was that there is something that exists outside of myself that can torment me. Yes. And I have no power over 
And then yeah. through reevaluating that, through re-entering the dream in a meditative state, you could see actually it was inside. It appears yeah. to be in the distance, but it's inside my consciousness. And I'm not yeah. really falling. I'm perfectly still. Yes. So yeah. I, I'm just bringing that up as a conversational point, really, Simon. No, you, are, you are making a very important point. There is a, an ancient esoteric teaching that all of our bad experiences if viewed in the right way, are an initiation into something. It's like a baby being born with all the pain and the struggle could be seen as a hellish experience. But it's also something new emerging. Uh, so to begin to try to see these experiences as initiations often does transform them. That's an ancient understanding but that is not to underestimate the difficulty of doing that. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's something I accept is undeniably true. Like, so if I look at the difficult yeah. parts of my life, I say the same thing as everyone else looks at difficult parts of their lives and say, oh, but they were also yeah. the most transformative. Yes. Um, but it's also something I struggle with because and I think maybe you should struggle with this. Maybe it shouldn't yes. be entirely comfortable that that's the kind of truism because mm. you know, we, we would like to have a society where people raise their children in a more loving less abusive way right and that's like yes. good parenting advice to turn out healthy well-adjusted adults we don't say actually you should beat and traumatize your children because that will be a transformative experience for them so yes <laughs> it's something that uh, it, and this is this is see this is where contemplation is so important it's very easy to look back and say well that difficult experience was transformative in retrospect hmm. to say it in the middle of it is very very difficult however the practice of contemplation is a practice of stepping back from the everyday drama perhaps every morning or every evening and just trying to keep a little bit of distance so we can have a bigger view of these very intense experiences and often from that bigger place we can often see a way through or a better way to handle those very difficult experiences it's when we get too close to them and too lost in them, they really can become hellish. So that's what another way of understanding the relationship between the contemplative life and these hellish experiences. I think that's great, Simon. Is there anything more you'd like to say? Uh, I don't think so, no. I, I made a little note of things, but I, I think we've kind of gone through them all. So um, no, that's fine by me. Well, thank you very much. Um, I hope it's of interest and use to people. Uh, maybe something yep. a bit novel on, on the experience. And um, great, we'll see you on here again. Okay, thanks, Richard. Thank you. Bye. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. This is definitely a theme I'd like to dive into again. If you have any feedback, I'd be happy to hear it. And if you want to keep informed, please subscribe either on whatever platform or to the newsletter. Thank you.